0: And if you would, turn your Bibles to the letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy, chapter 3. It's page 1178 in your pew Bible, if you want to use that. 1178, 1 Timothy 3, and we'll begin with verse 8 in just a moment. The moment you set up a Christian school, or a seminary, or a local church, or a counseling center... The minute you do that, the minute you set something like that up or you join one of these that already exists, you have to think and pray about institutional integrity. It's truly unavoidable. Godly, stable leadership will usually mean blessing and longevity for that institution. Poor leadership and poor structure will eventually doom the institution you love and have worked so hard to advance so then caring about what how our church or organization is run is a way of loving our children and our grandchildren without institutional faithfulness these things we have worked so hard to do will simply slip away leaving our children and grandchildren to begin all over again i think this is very much in the mind of Paul as he writes the pastoral epistles. These three letters, the pastoral epistles, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, come near the end of his ministry. The gospel has gone forth, churches have been established, but how will the church transition from the apostolic era, the apostolic era, when so much was done through miracles and through eyewitness testimony to a time when the greater need will be for standing fast, holding fast to that foundation. Paul is not downplaying, and I hope I'm not doing this either, Paul is not downplaying the giftedness of all believers. He is not elevating the officers of the church as the only truly gifted ones. Paul writes extensively of the greatness and diversity of gifts in the church. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of deaconess or service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Paul is keenly aware, then, that all believers share in the gifts of Christ's Spirit. However, Paul's emphasis in these three letters should not be ignored. He's focused on the officers of the church because he's concerned for institutional integrity in the long term. He's concerned for the transition from the apostolic age of growth to the early church age of consolidation. Now at the heart of that transition, that adjustment, are the two perpetual offices in the church, elder and deacon. Some offices, like apostle and prophet, were extraordinary, temporary, foundational, as Paul puts it in the book of Ephesians. But the New Testament is clear, and the church has always believed that two offices came down to us for perpetual use, the office of deacon and elder. If you're visiting with us or watching online, please know that it is our normal practice to go a little more verse by verse through our text. But one more time today, I want to begin with 1 Timothy 3, but then look at the rest of the scriptures to get a sense of what this office of deacon means in the fullness of God's revelation. In weeks to come, we'll go more slowly through the verses individually. So please stand if you would. Let's read these verses. 1 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 8. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first, Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. This is God's word. Let's pray now and ask his blessing on it. Father, we do ask now that our hearts would be tuned to your word, that our thoughts would follow after you, and that we would be conformed to your word. We pray that you would strengthen us to hear your word preached and that you would use it for the building up of this church, For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. My goal this morning is not to go through, as I said, all the verses here in chapter 3. We will, God willing, do that in coming sermons. But for today, we want to ask what this office is all about Of course, the word deacon literally means servant, and the deacons were engaged, we know this from the New Testament, in what we might call mercy ministry. But can we briefly build a kind of biblical theology of the deacon that might uh, this morning unlock more of what the office really means? That's our goal. To do that, I want to ask you to go with me down three paths this morning three avenues of exploration. First, let's consider how the office of deacon is introduced in the Old Testament. Second, how the office of deacon is perfected in Christ's life and ministry. And then thirdly, how the office is continued in the New Testament church. So introduced in the Old Testament, perfected in Jesus, continued in his church. So first of all, the office of deacon is introduced to us really through the Old Testament. We don't have all the specifics there, but the heart of the deacon, the heart of what it means to be a deacon, emerges from the Old Testament. People who have never really read the Old Testament like to say with great confidence that the God of the Old Testament is wrathful, dangerous, and generally lacking in kindness. I probably don't need to say this here, but for your own sake, let me remind you that such statements are as blasphemous as they are pathetically ignorant. The God of the Old Testament, who is the same God of the New Testament, is abounding in compassion. That is his own identifying statement of himself. As you heard from Jeremiah earlier, God had and still has an intense concern for the poor, the needy, and the vulnerable. As Jeremiah and all the prophets make so clear, Israel is sent into exile both for idolatry, that is false belief, but equally for false living, for abusing the poor, the orphan, the widow, and the refugee. The prophets of scripture As covenant prosecutors, constantly bring together these two accusations or charges against the people of Israel. You also heard this morning, in our words of confession, Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel, calling out Sodom for this same sin. And there are dozens of places in the Old Testament we could go to, to hear God's deacon heart. But I've chosen Psalm 10. Psalm 10, listen to what the psalmist reveals about God. Quote, to you, the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their hearts. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man... Who is of the earth may strike terror no more. There are millions of people today who are dealing with poverty, hardship, and oppression who have not sought that out. God revealed himself in the Old Testament as especially near to these people and to their cries. And you can see why, right? Can't you? The poor, the poor do not have access to powerful lawyers, politicians, or the great of society. God is their only refuge, pure and simple. And this, I think, is why God reveals himself as sensitive to their cries. Because when they cry out to him, there's a kind of purity to their plea, isn't there? They have no one else to turn to. And so they come in faith alone to him. And God insists in the Old Testament again and again that he will take up their case. Even if it does not happen in this life, God will avenge these needy people who are looking to him alone for their deliverance and help. In light of this basic teaching, this fundamental reality about God in the Old Testament, God then put in place numerous laws and practices within Israel to aid and defend the vulnerable. For example, every 50 years at the time of Jubilee, the land was supposed to revert back to the original families. So if your family had lost everything, You had sold your land and become a servant instead of a landowner. Eventually, you would get that back. Now, this practice did not mean total redistribution of wealth. That's not what happened. And we have to be careful about applying that today because Israel had a unique calling and a unique relationship with the Holy Land. However, we shouldn't ignore how this practice powerfully worked against generational poverty. Even if your family fell on terrible times, there would have been a real chance for full recovery built in. To give just one other famous example, remember with me the story of Ruth. Ruth, as a poor widow, would go to Boaz's field and gather wheat free of charge from his field. Jews, righteous Jews, were expected to leave parts of their fields unharvested so that the poor could enter and take what they needed. This is also the background for that moment in Jesus' life where he and his disciples are walking through a field on the Lord's Day and they rightly are allowed to take of the grain in the field to sustain them in the heat of the day. The great Puritan theologian John Owen roots, he roots the office of deacon in these Old Testament teachings and practices. He goes first, though, to the words of Jesus in John 12:8. There Jesus says, For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. Some of us, when we first read that verse, maybe we worried a little. Is Jesus expressing a kind of disinterest in the needs of the poor? Well, they're always going to be there. Some might even say ignorantly that Jesus here is channeling the mean old God of the Old Testament. But Owen knows better. The context for Jesus' words is the town of Bethany, Bethany, right outside Jerusalem. It's the time of Jesus' final Passover. Mary, as in Lazarus' sister, has just taken a jar of expensive ointment, more than a year's worth of wages... And she's broken the seal, ripped it apart, and poured the whole thing on Jesus. Judas, one of Jesus' disciples, is incensed by this waste. He says that this expensive item should have been sold and the money given to him to hold on behalf of the poor. Jesus then is defending Mary and reminding the disciples that the poor will always be with them, yes, but that this is a unique moment and that she has done this for his death. But John Owen reminds us of the whole verse Jesus was quoting from. That verse is Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 11. Here's how it goes. For there will never cease to be the poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother to the needy and to the poor in your land. Here's Owen's point. The disciples knew this verse. Jesus may have even quoted the whole thing, and we just have the partial quotation here in John's gospel. Jesus is, even as he's describing what Mary did is okay in this situation, he is affirming the relief of poverty as a valid goal. Owen then rightly sees in all this, that Jesus and his disciples practiced regular giving to the poor. A few months back, I had the privilege of giving a devotional to our deacons from Jeremiah chapter 22. Speaking of the righteous king, the ideal king, Jeremiah says, quote, He judged the cause of the poor and needy. Then it was well, is not this to know me? So the office of deacon is really introduced to us in the Old Testament. Israel as a holy nation was set up to be diaconal because God is a deacon. Second, this reality introduced in Israel is perfected in God's Son who is Israel perfected. On the worst night of his life, the night on which he was betrayed, Jesus washed the feet of his disciples, probably right before or after instituting the supper, where he gave his body also to them. The, this act of washing the feet is and was stunning. In Judaism at the time, the act of washing feet was considered the lowest activity a person could stoop to. In fact, Jewish law forbade a Jewish man from ever being made to wash another Jew's feet. People have tried ever since then to recapture that moment of humility. The English and French monarchs of the past had an ancient tradition where poor people would be brought before the king or queen and they would try to recreate the washing of the feet in obedience to Christ. The Pope has recently done the same as well. Whether these attempts are good or just for show, I cannot say. But what we can say is that no one can match what Jesus did that night. No matter how many feet a person washes, literally or metaphorically, none of us can give our body for the life of the world. The word deacon can mean a waiter of tables. That night, Jesus became the greatest servant of tables the world has ever or will ever know. And as is so often true today, Jesus did this service, he did this service in the presence of man's pride and arrogance. In the context you might know, the disciples are arguing over who will be the greatest. Jesus rebukes them by his actions and he rebukes them by his words. He says, Luke 22 The kings of the Gentiles exercise exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as the one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves table? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves tables. Notice that Jesus here presents himself as a servant, one who waits on tables. I am among you as the one who serves. And the word for service here, which is used three times in this section, that word is the word deacon in Greek. Jesus gave his body and blood to create the Passover feast. And then he girds himself like a servant, like a deacon, and washes those who come to the feast. In fact, if you think about it, and we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper tonight, so you'll have a chance to see this. If you think about it, you can see both offices of the church so clearly in the Lord's Supper. As an elder or a bishop, Jesus leads the Passover meal and takes the role of head of house. In Judaism, the head of house, at a particular spot in the Passover meal, he pauses and explains what the elements mean. He would recite the story of the Exodus traditionally and instruct the household. And so Jesus, as elder and overseer, took the elements and explained them, not in the way anyone expected, As he turned to his disciples and said, this is my body and blood. And he gave them. But as deacon, as deacon, Jesus is also full of service and lowliness for the sake of the ones he loves. Washing their feet and presenting the elements of his body for their use. Now, can you see that this is what we're doing and what we're going to do tonight every time we have communion The deacons, as it were, wait on tables. They gather the elements downstairs and they lay them out for us. The table is their table of service. But they leave to the elders, as head of God's house, to instruct on their meaning and serve them to God's people. Jesus also perfected the office of deacon, not just in his life and actions but in his teachings. Jesus gave us many passages that inform the work of deacons and the work each of us is to do as we serve each other. But two texts particularly stick out. The first is the parable of the Good Samaritan. In that parable, Jesus is defining what it means to be someone's neighbor. All Israel knew that the summary of the law was to love the Lord with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus challenged his fellow Israelites to consider whether they were really showing love for strangers and others. Although we may not agree with everything in it, Tim Keller's book on ministries of mercy has become a classic work on deacons and diaconal ministry. And that book is built entirely around this parable. Another striking example of this in Jesus' teaching is the judgment Jesus gives in Matthew 25 what we might call what I know I've called before a diaconal judgment a diaconal judgment in that chapter Jesus invites into eternity those who are true lambs he's able he says to distinguish between the lambs and the goats by looking at their heart for service Jesus says of them quote for i was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. These righteous servants, of course, are grateful to be brought into eternity, but they're also confused. Lord, they ask, when did we see you hungry, or a refugee, or in prison? Jesus answers, truly, truly, I say to you, As you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Here you see, we have to go beyond just the office of deacon. All believers are called to acts of service and there will be a diaconal judgment in the last day. The deacons, of course, coordinate these activities. They watch over them. They model them. But these acts of service are for all God's people living righteously. Which leads us to our last point. Rooted in the Old Testament, perfected in Jesus' life and ministry, now lastly, the office of deacon is to be continued in Christ's church until his return. Since Jesus and his disciples carried funds for the poor, made donations— and collected offerings for the poor, how can the church of Jesus stop this important work? Jesus was teaching the 12, wasn't he? Right from the beginning. Jesus was teaching the 12 that generosity and service would mark his followers. But you might remember there was a problem, a big problem. Judas Iscariot was the one who held the bag of money. The gospels tell us that he loved money and that he would steal from the funds for the poor. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but could that stealing, that little stealing he was doing all the time, have prepared the way for the moment when Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver? I think it did. And I think it's a powerful reminder to us of how one sin repeated over and over again in our lives, can lead to something tragic, something much bigger. In any case, right from the start, there was a need to have men to look after the funds, men who would not be greedy and could be trusted. Funds had to be collected safely, quietly, privately, and then they had to be distributed with equal tact and care. Our deacons still do this today as they collect the offering and make sure that it is counted properly. They don't keep a record of, which each, of what each of you gives, but they do keep a record of the overall gifts. And they do this in pairs or in groups so that there's always multiple witnesses. And Dr. Donaldson, our treasurer, provides a third witness. And this all comes together for us in Acts chapter 6. Although the office of deacon is not specifically mentioned, this clearly is a foundational text for the office. In Acts 6, the church has grown, but so have the needs. The church is taking care of several widows, women living in extreme poverty. However, some of the widows, the Greek-speaking ones, were being skipped or being overlooked. It doesn't seem, from what we can tell, to have been intentional, more of an oversight. But it was a serious one. In response to this crisis, the elders of the church ask the congregation to identify seven men of good character and full of the Holy Spirit. The congregation does so, and the elders ordain these men to lead the church's ministry to widows, and eventually to all those in need of mercy ministry. The elders give their reasoning by saying, quote, we will devote ourselves to prayer And to the ministry of the word. Immediately after this, immediately after the deacons are appointed and this situation is cleared up, here's what the book of Acts says The word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests, the Jewish priests, became obedient to the faith. The widow crisis might have felt inconvenient to the early church leaders. But as so often is the case, the struggle that happened there in Acts 6 was actually God's way of bringing about something better. This same set of practices is also seen in this very letter, 1 Timothy. Later on in 1 Timothy, we'll see this in coming weeks, Paul will give instructions on how to identify a true widow, That is, who in the church can be designated a widow dependent on the funds of the church? Deacons may not use the church's funds to enable people to live wickedly. Rather, they are to search out the truly needy and then do everything to help them with all joy and eagerness. Our book of church order is not always eloquent. Uh, But it is eloquent when it speaks of the deacons, I think. Here's what it says. It says, the office of deacon is one of sympathy and service after the example of the Lord Jesus. It also expresses the communion of saints, especially in helping one another in time of need. Or consider these words. These are words from another Reformed church, the words they use when they appoint their deacons. Here's what they say. Deacons are to be sure that no one in the congregation of Christ lives uncomforted under pressure of sickness, loneliness, and poverty. So against loneliness, our deacons offer rides to church for elderly members. Against sickness, our deacons pray for and visit the sick. They pay for hospitalization needs or bring comfort in any number of ways. Against poverty, our deacons give non-interest loans, help members get rid of bad debt and pay important bills. They also support retired ministers who are in financial distress And give gifts to other deacons in churches that have greater financial needs. Now, step back with me for a moment. I hope a picture has formed in your mind of what the deacons are about. They are rooted in God's concern for the poor and needy, as it is expressed so powerfully in the law and the prophets. Second, they look to Jesus as the archdeacon, the perfect deacon who waited on tables and was among us as a deacon or servant. And lastly, the deacons seek to live out the models given us in Acts and in the church's history for doing mercy ministry in order that the elders may be free to do other things and that the church, as it did in Acts, may thrive. Now, whether you ever become a deacon or not, let me offer a couple of ways we should all respond to this teaching. First, although we always care about someone's soul first, and primarily, we should also care about their physical needs. God does not ignore our bodies or our circumstances. Yes, Jesus rightly said, what will a man give for his soul? What will it profit a man to gain the world and lose his soul? This is true. But we should never use that to ignore legitimate needs. James, in chapter 2 of his letter, puts it so well. He says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled. Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? The Lord's Supper and baptism remind us that God interacts with our bodies and uses our real circumstances to show his love. So let us not fall into an either-or mindset. You can offer babysitting help to your friend who's fighting cancer, and also share the gospel message at a future time. In fact, quite often, that is probably the best way to do it, almost always, to wed together, to join together word and deed ministry. By living in mercy with each other and our neighbors, God creates a community that people are drawn to because so many people are in desperate need of mercy. Second, we need to altogether avoid the temptation, avoid the temptation to see the office of deacon as a training ground for elders. Some old commentators very wrongly read verse 13 to mean that deacons who did well would get a good seat, that is, will be promoted to be elders or bishops. Now, there are lots of reasons why we shouldn't think like that. I don't think any of the best commentators today or in the Reformation think that's what's being said in verse 13. It's just not there. But it's revealing that they thought that way, isn't it? We tend to fall into the trap of the Corinthian church. That is, we tend to value some gifts very highly while demeaning other gifts. Paul's letter to that church, the Corinthian church, was meant to reset their priorities. Instead of focusing on the explosive gifts of tongues, they were supposed to focus on love. That's what 1 Corinthians 13 is about. That is, they were to focus on using whatever they had for the good of the body. We dare not. We dare not undervalue gifts of service, even the most menial acts of service. And lastly, lastly, all this should lead us to Jesus in worship. This should lead you to Jesus. If you've gotten through this message and you haven't been led to worship Jesus Christ, then I've failed in some way. Jesus is the deacon above all others. He is the suffering servant of Isaiah. He loves and cares for his people with tremendous interest and concern. Even the hairs of your head are numbered. To be under Jesus' diaconal care is to never hunger or thirst again. He is the deacon who will wipe away every tear from our eyes. He is the deacon who has prepared a place for us and waits upon our table. To be a Christian, then, to be a Christian is to trust, love, and follow the archdeacon, Jesus Christ. Remind yourself today that you are following a deacon, the deacon. And know this, know this, either you let him serve you or you perish. On that same climactic night the night of his betrayal, Peter, you'll remember, the Apostle Peter balked. He balked when Jesus offered to wash his feet. He was uncomfortable with a deacon king. Jesus's answer, unless I wash you, unless I serve you, you have no part with me. Amen. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for the deacon that you sent to us in the fullness of time, who even now, through his Holy Spirit, washes us, even now is preparing a place for us, and whose servant heart knows no end. We need his service. We need his washing. We need his help. Help us not to be too proud, too selfish to resist him, but rather May every person here consciously, spiritually come before the great deacon and present their, themselves to him and all their needs and look to him to meet those needs. Father, how we thank you that these things are symbolically represented to us in the office of deacon in this church. Strengthen all of us to serve each other. Strengthen especially our deacons to image this reality of their heavenly Savior. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.